Welcome back to Sex and Censorship. This is Jerry Barnett. This episode is about race and racism, which are subjects close to my heart. I'm in discussion with Courtney Hamilton, a black Londoner who, like me, has a background in left-wing activism and, like me, has become increasingly worried about the direction of the so-called anti-racism movement. Courtney writes about troublesome and divisive issues like false racism accusations and the strange bullying idea of, quotes, cultural appropriation. By the way, if you like this content and would like it more often and with better production standards, please support my campaign for liberal values by going to patreon.com slash jerrybarnett. You can also find me on Twitter at PornPanic and on Facebook, the page is Sex and Censorship. Now on with the show. I'm Courtney Hamilton and um, my main uh, interest has been uh, photography. That's where I uh, essentially come from. I um, graduated at London College of Printing back then, it's London College uh, University of Communications That's today in, in Elephant in Elephant Castle. Um, I'm kind of well, I'm born and bred in South London, and um, uh, I'm a Millwall supporter, by the way. And um, I was going to boo, but I'm not, I'm not really a football <laughs> fan, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of and we happen to be neutral on this subject. And we happen to be sat in uh, New Cross, so this is all familiar ground to me where I was um, uh, brought up and um, so but most recently uh, in the last couple of years now I've been um, reading and writing on issues uh, relating to race and uh, more specifically anti-racism yeah and um, the course they seems to be taking um, at the moment um, so for me um, uh, every day I, you know, go into Google, punch racism and literally see what comes up. I've been doing that uh, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, every day for the last two years. Uh, you, uh, yeah, I've got some Google alerts set up and things. So, you know, my <laughs> mail gets bombarded with stuff that it's almost... Yeah, it's almost kind of self-punishment, isn't it? What's, what's <laughs> it gonna can wind, be. What's going to wind me up today? <laughs> um, can I... Uh, I mean, your own background and get get based on your age and location and stuff. And get, you're one of the infamous children of the Windrush generation. Well, yeah, I was discussing this with um, uh, a, a PhD writer yesterday about even the the whole sort of uh, concept of the word um, Windrush, yeah, because. Um, at the moment, that seems to, uh, you know, when people think about Windrush, they think about obviously the ship and they think about people who arrived uh, between 62, 1962 and sometime, uh, you know, before sort of 1971. But the Windrush arrived in 1948. 48, sorry, that's right. 1948. Um, so that was that was the first. Big the first influx of yeah black which, people into the UK. Well, two hundred or so people. Okay, well, <laughs> but yeah, it's funny because a, a lot of people were making a big fuss at there the time. A lot, of, <laughs> a lot of ships did follow that. Yeah, time, that's right. The next twenty years um, or so. But there was, it, you know, in fact, um, uh, a wave of um, post-war migration from the colonies, in uh, especially from the Caribbean, into the UK and uh, you know 
many came on ships because obviously that's you know the the cheapest way uh, of gain from the Caribbean to to there. Um, so it, it, obviously the second generation that are here in the UK today would be um, you know sort of yeah my parents um, could be said to be of. The, you know, the children of the... Uh, in oh, fact, right. so they you, are the Windrush generation. So your parents migrated? My parents migrated from Jamaica yeah. to here. Uh, my father, he worked in Falls um, just as a car plant um, engineer. And my mother was a, um, a nurse. Uh, and she worked in St. Giles Hospital just up the road mm-hmm. um, from here. It's, not, it's a block of flats at the moment now, but <laughs> that's another thing. And um, uh, for me, they kind of represent what the Windrush generation um, is. And so yeah, that's I stereotypical, see aspirational, hardworking, um, indeed. looking for a better life for their kids. Yeah, or... indeed. Um, because, you know, when you read back of what Jamaica was like, they came over, um, in fact, my father came over in it would have been 63 and my mother in 64 mm. um so and then you know my sister was born after that and then uh, after they got settled and in Lewisham um and um, that's when they started their family but when you look back at um it, in the early 60s in Jamaica it you know there wasn't anything there for that was them. a poor country it was there was literally nothing there for them and um, uh, they managed to uh, scrape together some money for the fair um, to get to get over here and you know they haven't really um, looked back kind of since mm. um, but I think what is um, really important as well um, uh, for for me as well, knowing that, um, you know, they really had something going for them. You know, they really wanted to, you know, sort of reach out and make a new life and they knew they could do it. Yeah. You know, and they, you know, they had the gumption and just the, uh, um, you know, the proverbial rules to do it. It's basically. one of the reasons why migration is generally, immigration is generally good because you typically get the more driven the smarter, the more the hardworking people, indeed, and they tend to leave their kind of lazier cousins <laughs> behind. <laughs> well, it, uh, it, it seemed that was the way. These these um, my um, aunts and my uncles they did exactly the same thing. Mm. Um, uh, you know, they they looked at what was going on in their own countries, um, um, in in the parts of the Caribbean, and it, it was a complete, you know, an utter mess back in the 60s, downtown sort of Kingston, you know, was really was poverty stricken and mm. there wasn't much scope for, you know, sort of um, having a decent life or, uh, or you know, or, or even aspiring to have a decent life for yourself, let alone um, for your children back then. So, it, you know, it, it, was, it was a no-brainer. You know, yeah. sort of, <laughs> for I think those. my introduction to all that was I kind of grew up, you know, in Wembley, which is out, you know, slight. It was it was a suburb then. It's kind of more in London now, but it's it's just on the cusp. But and then in 1976, my family <clears throat> moved to Kensal Rise, and I went to secondary school. And suddenly, I was, I was one of four white kids, and so you know, most of the kids were West Indian, and 
I was immersed in this culture that I, I've always loved. I love to this day, um, but it's far more, it, you know, it's fascinating and interesting. It got me involved in anti-racism, but it also gave me a very different perspective on things from a lot of other kind of white people or a lot of people who are now on the left. <clears throat> um, so yeah, to an extent, I, I think it made me see think life in a, in a very different way that, yeah, at the time, for sure, I wanted to stand up against police harassment, the National Front, the threats to, to black people, at the same time realising that what you're fighting for is equality and, and that throughout my school days and, and that kind of thing, I, I, had to, I had to assert myself. I was in, you know, Jamaica is such a proud culture, you know. <laughs> this wasn't, these people, like the people I grew up with weren't, didn't see themselves as victims or Indeed. or um, or oppressed or whatever. They saw themselves as kings of the earth. You know, that's kind of to me yeah. that's the Jamaican attitude. And uh, they were pretty fearless. The that's right. They, yeah. they had a very fearless kind of um, attitude. And I think you yeah, know, I mean, Jamaica is such a powerful culture. Like nowhere else on earth could, <laughs> has, has created so much culture. But you know. Uh, Probably Ireland. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> again, another country with again another mm. sense of itself, and you know a sense of you know and, uh, yeah, uh, a diaspora country. Yeah, a, a country that's spread out, you know, across the world, and also another, uh, uh, you know, a country that has a real kind of proud sense of itself, but also. Um, a, mm. a real fighting notion about itself that it's you know it's not prepared you know to be kind of um, treated you know sort of like something you scrape off your bottom of your shoe without consequences yeah. and, and you see that in people's <laughs> individual characters and certainly I, I think you know you certainly see it, see it with Jamaicans and yeah. like I say the people like you know this idea today of, of oppression and of white supremacy and hierarchy you know that the, the anti-racism movement talks about you know i never got that to me as a white person in a minority in a jamaican culture it was very much my job to fit in and to and but also to assert myself and to assert my rights to be an equal and much as i was an anti-racist campaigner and you know and was disgusted by what how the police were acting at the time i had to every day assert you know my rights to be an equal with the with the people i was surrounded by i think of me growing up especially in south london a lot of that was kind of given in a way um, with a lot of the people that I kind of knew and grew up with you know they you know that everyone had kind of got used to the fact that um, you know the the post-war migration of Caribbeans they were here they were here to stay there was nothing you know they had Mm. children um, that you'd gone to school with they're friends with you you know um, the integration side of that kind of um, uh, uh, that post-war immigration was, you know, to all intents and purposes, a, a very uh, successful yeah, um, I mean, thing. I agree, and actually I think that's something that needs to be rammed down people's throats today, because <laughs> people are almost insisting on, some people are almost ins- insisting on being, becoming victims again. And I mean, you know, I, or comparing us to the American situation, which is very different, but by the time I, like I say, 1976, I became immersed in it, black and white working class cultures had already kind of melded together and, and fused together. And there was a lot of mutual respect. Um, uh, especially when, you know, the two tone thing came about that it was a very natural, organic 
um, kind of uh, multiculturalism uh, that was emerging in the UK at that time. Yeah. And, you know, sort of the two-tone movement was kind of an expression of that kind of, just a natural coming together of kind of, you know, mm. this, this white um, kind of working class culture as well as uh, black working class culture in the same kind of a pot in this like melting pot and it, it just seemed a very sort of natural um you know uh, th- uh, natural thing that had, uh, was happening it was in britain very, but that actually is very it, it is very specific to this country i don't think yeah. other countries um you know especially in europe um, no, went through the same I process. I don't see an equivalent anywhere in Europe. Uh, uh, and that's why I always the United States. Yeah, that's why I always say it's very what's happened. The history of what has happened in Britain in the last forty years is very specific to Britain. Yeah. You can't compare Britain to say what's going on in France. Oh, obviously there are similarities. There are certain you know sort of similarities, but. Um, culturally, socially, and politically, um, it, it kind of uh, developed uh, and it emerged uh, its own distinct kind of uh, uh, character. Uh, and uh, I, yeah, and, and I, I think that I, I've seen that, and I think you know. I, sometimes I get increasingly upset, and I think you do about almost the slandering of, of white British people. Yeah, I do. Uh, that really. Um, Bugs me, um, you know. I, I, like I say, every day, I, you know, sort of, I go on to Google and I, you know, sort of press racism, and then, you know, uh, all I seem to find, you know, the majority of the cases these days is that there's this kind of call-out culture of kind of, uh, you know, of calling people out um, and calling them racist. Yeah. And so you kind of okay, let's, let's get into the meets and bones of this specific allegation mm. only to find out that you know uh, it, it, it wasn't the case and but mm. you know and that's what I seem to be finding out more and more it's actually says people who kind of are kind of so quick um, to use the word racialist racist um, you know seem to be more becoming more and more of a problem than actual racism itself on yeah. on black people. I mean, I, yeah, well, it, I mean, it, that's it what I'm used as an finding. excuse for. A, I'm not going to use the term reverse racism because no, I, I don't it, like that but term. Either. But it gets used as an excuse to bully people. So actually, but there's it, power in it now. Power. I think so. Yeah, people have it, it's, um, um, learned, in fact, that there is power now in accusing people of racism yeah. uh, in the same sense that ideas come over from America where now you know um, corporations and um, institutions are completely terrified of being <laughs> accused of being racist on the stupidest <laughs> on the dumbest of grounds I mean uh, it, over the last couple of years I, you know because I track it as well there was the Dove ad um, where you know, which wasn't very really sad. Because you know, I've got oh, so many. Oh, the one black with the girls that changed. They're morphed. taking their skin off. Yeah, so they're, yeah. They're, 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 take, they're changing their skin like clothing. And actually, if you look at the ad, it's kind of a black girl turning into a white girl, turning into an Indian girl. Turning, it's, a, it's a kind of very humanist, anti racist kind of message. But 
because I, I, you know, I have so many kind of black activist friends on Facebook. I, I've watched these things evolve hour by hour. So, <laughs> I mean, that one in particular was the first thing was that someone extracted four screenshots from the from the video and shared them on Facebook. So before anyone had seen the video, they'd seen these four screenshots that made it look kind of like a white black woman was turning into a white woman. Um, and then everyone got really angry and then everyone started and it's kind of, and then it's like, when will this, will this never end? Will the oppression never end? And you're talking about people in London who are trying to, trying to imagine themselves as 1950s Alabamans or something, you know, like, I think you've hit the nail right on the head there. It's somehow people, um, in the year 2018, um, you know, sort of having as if they've kind of walked out of a Black Panther meeting of 1962, and uh, you know, sort of watch a Heineken advert or, or you know, or watch a, a Dove advert, yeah, the and they're applying that kind of idea that you know that there is kind of this um, oppression around. Well, and... Oppression is kind of people. people <laughs> it's a strong love, word. People love wearing oppression. <laughs> I pointed out in, in my book, you know, oppression used to be something people didn't want, and now it's something people do want, you know. So, um, yeah, it, it is kind of, um, you know, it's almost fashionable uh, uh, to a certain extent. I, I kind of think of the, the people like Afua Hirsch, you know, who kind oh, of God. revels in it, <laughs> in, a, in a sense, you know, she's, she, 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 she loves it, you know, it kind of, uh, for her, it's almost an identity. You know the, this whole idea that she somehow yeah, is so kind she's of a middle-class guardian journalist, <laughs> precisely as one of the you know <laughs> as privileged as you can get in global terms. And but yeah, for her, my skin is brown. The trauma down of, to me, you know. Yeah, but for her, she's the, from oh, she, oh she's from she, Wimbledon, what, what, <laughs> yeah, the, the badlands. Of yeah, yeah, you know the ghettos. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's I mean it, a lot of it is middle-class people suddenly finding. This, this power, as you say, but they wouldn't have it without these, uh, like incredibly annoying white middle class people who have decided to say sorry for stuff that never happened, or you know, that who are sucking know, it up basically. Who are, because <laughs> because they're the ones kind of saying sorry, and they're the ones telling other white people, "Shut up! You've got to let this woman talk because she's black," and you know. Well, she realizes <clears throat> as well, I suppose, <throat> maybe subconsciously, <clears throat> that um, you know when she's running around sort of kicking at these doors actually they fly open yeah they're not they're not like the doors where we used to kick down you know sort of back in the mid 80s in order you mm. know um against the this you know the spg the special police group and you know this is yeah. not that kind of a society that we're living in at the moment where if you you know if you really wanted justice you you, you know you would you have to, to scream and shout you know, and fight the 1981 <laughs> riots were not you know. We're not privileged, entitled, bright <laughs> These were people who were getting beaten up by the yeah. police. And, 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 and that literally and, had nothing to lose. And literally. again, in 1985, I think, in Tottenham, um, you know, you, there was mass, you had to have massive sympathy, even, even if there were, you know, thugs out taking advantage of it. You had to have massive sympathy for what drove people to it. But it's something markedly changed. And I only woke up to this, I think, later than you. Um, you know, sometime between the early 80s and the 2000s, something changed where the conditions of the old racism went away. And yet, and, and, and the more it went away, the more people 
started demand it, wanting it, wanting to hold on to it. And then there's this flip into identity politics, which was very recent, like post 2010, yeah. where suddenly people are trying to resurrect stuff and wear it as a badge of pride or a badge of. And what do you think changed in that 30 years or so? What, well, I think it the was events? the emergence, um, the real kind of grip that um, identity politics seemed to be having on uh, the outlook of an, um, a new emerging um, kind of uh, anti-racism uh, during that time. And um, it, 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 did, it did seem to me, because that was actually the reason why I actually started writing because before then I hadn't been writing anything at all mm. but it just seemed to be there were now you know people were getting you know, you know really great white kind of anti-racist writers were seen you know in the face of kind of this kind of new emerging kind of almost hysterical um, identity politics decided this is not worth it. It's not worth and that's, me. You know, another a lot of white people are too scared to speak and, up in this in this climate. And it's 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 a real shame because I'm not talking about white anti racist people. Yeah, exactly, and I think you know it's a real shame. And I kind of noticed mm. this as well that you know they a lot of them weren't prepared to um, to just you know. Uh, take this kind of hostility from people who are saying, "Who are you to talk about racism?" Um, you know, when you're white. You know, even yeah. though they've been uh, reading some of the most, um, you know, sort of uh, seminal texts in, you know, sort of anti-racist thought for the last kind of fifty years. These are real experts, in, you know, in their field. But because yeah, and suddenly, were... <laughs> a, and suddenly, middle-class student. <laughs> 21 knows more because they happen to be brown just because the of their biological makeup um you know could but the thing was as well uh, there was a torrent of this kind of abuse you know being fielded at you know sort of great sort of white um anti-racist uh, thinkers and it, i i just gradually saw them one after another kind of retreating from that area and mm. leaving the area of anti-racism and the writing um, uh, to, to these kind of identitarians. Yeah, and I, I mean, I see identitarianism, if you like, as exactly what we fought against in the 80s. So, you know, the National Front was identity politics. They wanted to define Indeed. people by skin colour and separate people. So, you know, I, I guess I'm one of the few people that doesn't back down, but it's it gets really tiring sometimes because I have, I've been unfriended <laughs> by a lot of people. I've faced abuse by a lot of people, but it's the reason I don't is probably because I spent seven years at school with a bunch of Jamaicans having to assert myself on a daily basis. And I'm used to it. It's mm -hmm. like, I'm not, I've never been ashamed to be white. Mm -hmm. whereas, uh, and whereas that's what <laughs> some people want you to be. And, it, but you know, and I wrote this blog post in 2011, 12 ish, called I Never Left the Left, the Left Left Me. This was my waking up moment, which was basically saying I haven't shifted in 35 years on my anti-racism principles, but suddenly the left has become racist and is trying to define me as a racist and I'm not going to, I'm not going to accept it. I'm, I'm going to have to stand my ground. And it's... it's and so you should. Um, uh, but yeah, it, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's going to be a long... Um, kind of... Uh, 
wouldn't well, like to say battle, but it's kind of it's it, it, it's going to be a very long process um, to you know because I, I find myself having to think of um, kind of new and interesting ways in order to kind of combat that those um, ideas that uh, are becoming much more prevalent amongst a, a, a new emerging kind of uh, student base that seems to be coming up and being quite, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, influential. You know, they're, they're the ones that are getting the, you know, sort of um, the opinion pieces in The Guardian and, you know, in The Telegraph, um, you know, mm. because they seem to be, you know, sort <coughs> of um, saying the kind of things that, um, that seem to be acceptable and that won't be found to be too offensive that's why you could have someone like you know sort of um, uh, what's that uh, transsexuals uh, who just recently joined Bergoff Monroe, uh, Monroe yeah, Bergoff I mean, yeah, um, I, I, that's why you could have someone <coughs> like so her that's a, 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 who a tran- could uh, transgender woman um, yeah, yeah. So, um, but I mean that's what we live in now in a kind of climate where someone like that who can, you know, sort of have a, such a race orientated kind of um, colour of skin kind of view of she the makes, world. So she makes some anti-white... Yes, statements. Basically she's saying, you know, all white people are racist until they, you know, right. proven otherwise, yeah. basically. Um but you can have the rise of someone like that in in this type of climate. Um, I think mainly um, because one, there isn't that um, many people who are you know that willing to you know sort of um, argue against her you know point by point. Mm. Uh, and then secondly, um, there's a whole that some of her ideas are very popular at the moment. You know, to to view the world through the prism of race, um, not where, just view it, but use it as a stick to beat people with. So, I mean, so part of it, this is just basic human witch hunting kind of instinct, in, isn't it? Like, think, here, here's a group that that looks weak, and let's let's go for the jugular. <laughs> oh, and getting weak. But as well as that, they're helped by a climate of this offence taking as mm. well. Um, which and you know we've got hate speech laws um, at the moment now, uh, which really in a way silences many people. Mm. You know who you know don't want to fall foul of hate speech laws. They don't want to be accused of being a racist because we know what happens if you are publicly yeah, so accused. It, of a this. few years ago, it meant you were going to be destroyed on Twitter, now it could mean you go to prison. Uh, yeah, um, and, and worse, basically, mm. if that kind of label, that, that your career is racist, finished, shit, your, you, you yeah. know, you, you could end up being, you know, what's his name, Spencer, punched in the face, you know, just standing on the street corner yeah. doing uh, an interview, you know, minding your own business. I think, yeah, it, it can be worse. And people are generally absolutely terrified of the um, kind of, that kind of climate that we live in at the moment now, which does give these, you know, sort of um, Burgos and Afuas the kind of space and scope 
mm. um, to come out with kind of some com- completely outrageous, um, you know, sort of suggestions at the moment. And I think for me, that's why I kind of wanted to, um, which, you know, luckily Spike, you know, um, published um, my um, uh, my stuff and I was, you know, really kind of happy that they were doing it yeah. because there wasn't yeah, I mean, many people... Yeah who are actually um, being very critical of this kind of emerging kind of uh, yeah, uh, climate. Yeah, Spikes reviewed my book. Yeah, I'm, Spikes is one of those, it's very Marmite type thing. I mean, I, I agree with a fair bit of what they say and then I then sometimes strongly yeah. disagree, but at least they're, yeah, I mean, they're... They're, they're willing to give they're, they're certain ideas tide an airing. Yeah, 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 and they're not afraid, mm. basically, of... Um, you know, sort of uh, causing offence, yeah. basically. And it's it's not just fear. I think there's almost this fascism, and I, you know, I call it that sometimes, that's, that's gripped hold of publications that, you know, I used to be a Guardian Easter to the core, and I used to love the Guardian. And just the, sometimes the hate that pumps out of the Guardian, um, it's not just fear, it's actually that they've been taken over by these hateful people. And, yeah, Maybe I, I document... you might be reading in a lot of the opinion pieces where they yeah, um, have, you know, they basically have a almost like a blank check of, you know, sort of but, but it's, um, I mean, offense. The Guardian, I, I documented more from the, the point of view of feminism than, than the racial politics in my, in my book. But it's, um, there's, and again, it's interesting that there's a, a strong parallel between the feminist movement and the black activist, black nationalist movement. Um, where... Yeah, th- but there is, because what occurred to me, I was reading James Hartfield's um, um, Equal Opportunities Revolution, his new book, recently, and one of the, um, you know, sort of in, t- in the introduction, um, you know, what really struck me was he was trying to argue that, you know, uh, the last kind of 40 years, you know, um, at the beginning... The left used to win people over by sort of arguing, you know, you weren't going to be able to get, you know, sort of black rights and equality and fight against discrimination under capitalism. Mm. And you weren't going to be able to um, attain women's rights, you know, um, uh, under capitalism, lesbian and gay rights and so on and so forth. But kind of 40 years later, you know, after all these introduction of, you know, um, equality laws and anti-discriminatory laws. Yeah, it was kind of. <laughs> it all was, seems to it actually. Wrong. Yeah, I, I was in politics all, in the eighties, and but it all seems to have actually happened under yeah, capitalism. It's, it's one of the things that made me drift away from <laughs> Marxism, that you know, and, and not to mention poverty reduction and stuff like that. Exactly, um, everything that wasn't wasn't going to happen under capitalism has happened. Seems under to capitalism. actually has yeah. happened under capitalism. So it's a great, it's been a great dichotomy for the left. You know that has. You know, spent so much time and energy preaching that kind of idea um, that you know I, I I found it that 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 whole notion kind of uh, you know fascinating because it, it also you know explains that the the great kind of loss um, in the left's influence over the years as well because it hasn't been able to change and adapt and it's found that a lot of its ground has kind of shifted and moved. Yeah, uh, and away I think from there's it. a decline in intellectualism. Like one of the things I love oh, yeah. about being Where have the they left, gone? <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the early 80s, there were some incredibly 
smart people. And I used to love going to conferences and hearing these really clever people from all over the world, yeah, you know, the, indeed. In, intellectual giants yeah. that were on the left. And there aren't any intellectual giants on the left, or I'm missing them. Um, indeed, indeed. Um, and, you know, great anti-racist thinkers yeah. as well. Of You know, asked, um, you know someone um, the other day, you know, name me kind of uh, two or three of the great anti-racist thinkers of today. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, big, Hirsch, um, <laughs> it's a big um, <laughs> Amin and Arin, that's all I Afi Hirsch wasn't even mentioned, you know. It's um, like she's really, really specialist kind of knowledge. But there, know. I don't know if there are anti racist thinkers. It's all, I mean, you know, there, there are many things that happened. One of the things that's happened is that anti racism, having been accepted as a valid movement in the 70s and 80s, has now become an industry. Um, some people refer to this kind of thing as the grievance industry. So the more that you can build the grievance, the bigger the grants, the bigger the paychecks, the, bi- the bigger <laughs> the book deals. Um, That's right. There does seem to be that, that section. But in terms of what I was thinking, um, who are the great anti-racist thinkers, I, was, you know, I asked that in the same vein as like, you know, Martin Luther King, he, he was, who are the great anti-racist thinkers of that stature? Um, yeah, you know, or if you, today, you broaden it even more, like who are the thinkers full stop of that stature? Well, for me, I think there there's still there are the thinkers uh, but, out but there, are they on the left? but they're very few and far between. Mm. They're not as many, um, uh, you know, as the great giant thinkers um, yeah. that emerged, you know, post-war. Um, that you know, uh, who might you know. The, yeah, the, I mean, the living marks you know, and <laughs> the living, you know, the Martin um, Luther King, and, and, you know, and Malcolm X, and and also in in the arts fields, you know, I mean, Bob Marley and Fela Kuti were both giant giants, political yeah. giants. They weren't just great musicians. Yeah. They, but to an extent, I think they were they were fighting against real stuff, and the left today fights against imaginary stuff. And maybe you don't need to be an intellectual yeah, giant yeah, yeah, to, fight to do against, that. To fight you, I think you're right. Stuff. Definitely, I think. You've, again, you've hit the nail on the head. You know the the stuff that they're fighting about today. You know, sort of um, getting kicked out of Starbucks, or you know, sort of um, screaming about white girls. You know, having dreadlocks, or you know, yeah, I wanted of, to talk uh, about cultural <laughs> appropriation in a sec. And all that, you know, th- this is a kind of stuff <clears throat> that people are screaming and the anti-racists are kind of I screaming about the point to people. This, this is what makes you most angry and you haven't got much to complain about <laughs> and, really have you yeah that's right if this if this is anti-racism then you know leave me out you know to, to get a paraphrase uh, grace jones you know so if this is anti-racism please just you know come on baby leave me out basically i think um i mean we were talking before we started recording about um a big protest in the early 90s. Yeah, so, that was my the, first experience the, of um, going on an anti-racist demonstration. And um, It's interesting, because, yeah, if I could just set the scene with sure. the way I saw it, because you and I, I think we've converged from different places on, on ideas, but, I mean, that was one, probably the millionth anti-racism protest I've been on. I've been going on them since 1979, mm-hmm. and... I'd be all the way, you know, especially ninety, the late seventies, early eighties, when the National Front were really big. We had huge anti-racism protests, and they were, you, you know, all all races united, and it was black and white, mm. unite and fight, smash the National Front. Yeah. that was the thing. That's right. And then it kind of fizzled out, 
because the National Front fizzled out. And then in the 90s, the BNP turned up and we thought, oh no, it's the National Front all over again. And in, in hindsight, that threat had gone and it was gone for good and they could, you know, couldn't really be resurrected. But So there was a big, the BNP opened a bookshop in, in Elton. Elton, so East London, but wasn't really well, Monica, South it? London. It's just up the road, okay. really. So, yeah, I've, I've, <laughs> only, I've only been here four years. I'm a West London. <laughs> so it's like, and all of us who have been on marches suddenly went, it's back, we've got to go and fight. So we, there was this, um, they opened a bookshop and, and we said, everyone was saying, no, it's not a bookshop, it's their headquarters. And <laughs> we had to close it down. And, That's right. And we kind of went in there with this rage that how dare you, we beat you guys out 10 years ago and now you've come back. And this, we were on this massive protest and the police closed the road because otherwise, literally, that building would have been torn down. Yeah, yeah. Would have um, done. <laughs> and then there was a riot and um, we were charged at by mounted police and, I'm, you know, I'm a bit of a chicken, so I, I stayed back a bit. But, um, but it was, it felt like, at the time, I thought, it was like we've gone backwards, that, you know, all the old far-right anti-racism was coming back. Um, which, you know, in hindsight, it never did. The BNP never made a, the mark that, that we thought, that everyone thought. But yeah, I'd be interested in your perspective because you were on that protest. Yeah, that was, for me, that was my first major kind of um, intervention um, going into anti-racist politics. And I went as a part of a contingent of um, workers Against Racism. East London Workers Against Racism, we went over there. But we were selling kind of our sort of East Workers Against Racism. They had a little magazine, but we was also selling Living Marxism at the time. So we kind of do it in both. But the reason, the main arguments um, we were using when we were up there is that, you know, hey, it's okay, you know, to not like these guys, but please, you cannot tell the police to shut down their bookshop. Because it's censorship, yeah. You don't need to, you know, invite the police to shut down a bookshop because you find it offensive, yeah. Because what will happen is that if you give the police that power, guess whose bookshop they're going to be coming down and shutting next? Yeah. Because somebody found it offensive. So don't you know? give the state the power. <laughs> don't to... give them that power. Yeah. You know, and that's why we kind of opposed. That demonstration. We know, obviously, we don't oppose people going out on demonstration and demonstrating against racism, but that specific um, demonstration was aimed at closing down this bookshop. Mm. And um, f yeah, I, I even I kind of, kind of understood the importance of that because we had a bookshop um, just recently up in Camden, um, and it campaigned against militarism. But it sold kind of books and magazines. Um, from you know all over the left uh, kind of spectrum and kind of invited people from all over the left um, to come down and um, to have meetings there and all the rest of that um, so but again people in Camden were finding this little bookshop kind of uh, and its material kind of offensive you mm. know especially you know the you know he didn't like the you know the victory to Iraq, Iraq poster that they used to be in there, you know, victory to Iraq, you know, who are these people, you know, um, which at the time was a kind of very extreme kind of uh, um, uh, position uh, that the RCP yeah. took on 
And it's it's one of the central points about censorship is that, you know, to have censorship, you need censors. And (laughs) you have to trust those people with your freedom, basically. And, you know, even... It's one of the arguments why you can't and, censor stuff. And you? that the state was just completely <clears throat> untrustworthy mm. with that kind of freedom. Uh, but obviously we were trying to use different type of arguments to try and explain that. That, you know, it, it was really a bad idea to give the state this kind of power. Um, you know, the reason why it's, the state hasn't closed it down now is because no one's asking it to. In fact, what we're having now is anti-racists are inviting the police to shut down, you know, what they what you see as offensive and, you know, sort of uh, it's offending your sensibilities. So therefore, the police should have the power, you know, to close it down. Um, yeah, well, like, this this yeah, is completely... Has nothing to do with anti-racism, but it's more to do, you know, with endowing the the state, which you already argue it, that does not act in the interests of, you know, sort of ordinary black um, white people. Uh, you're endowing them in, uh, with more power um, that will actually end up coming down on your head, you know, if not, you know, d- today at some at some uh, point I think it's, in yeah, the future. It's power and it's people flexing their muscles and it's also the fact that maybe the left has you know the establishment and the left have kind of merged over the last 30 years so you know that the left trusts the establishment to close down racists and to close down sexists and transphobes and homophobes and whatever because the establishment is kind of you know and the left have kind of merged and uh, yeah i agree with you i agree with you you know especially um because you always wonder year after year what is it about the state that the left love (laughs) love about it so much because you know even this week we've heard you know that the state kind of um, wantonly kind of destroyed these kind of um, you know it doesn't matter whether it's if it's conservative or it's the labor but it was the state thought it was okay to just tear up these landing cards without, you know, kind of um, digitising them or anything. Yeah, you know, putting them that's in the windrush thing, which is... <laughs> I mean, that's one of those interesting situations where, on the one hand, all of my uh, kind of black activist friends have, you know, jumped on it and it's instantly, definitely racism, definitely, <laughs> definitely they want to deport all black people and, and all of that kind of thing. So that, on the one hand, um, on the other hand... Um, no one's actually supporting this measure. It's like somewhere between one, it's either complete government incompetence or it's extreme racism. And I'm, I err towards incompetence, even though there, yeah. there could be a dose of racism. No, there, I, I, I don't think it is. I think, like you say, it's more to do with, you know, uh, just the state in itself. You know, it, it, the state, you know, really kind of, you know, it lacks authority as well um, at the moment now and it's just continually proving itself to be incompetent it really cannot cope with the new demands that is um, you know that is having on um, uh, being put on it by people so you have you know in this one week the the state you know we find out the state has done this in the past and but also in the same week we find out the state has been kicking down Cliff Richard's door, you know, for for what, you know, apparently, you know, that's going to blow up the, this week, you know, um, uh, 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 
and what else? And and, and at the weekend, it bombs, um, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, it, it just bombs a third world country for, you know, it says for humanitarian reasons. And, you know, this all happened in the space of one week. Hmm. And it really does make you think, you know, come on, the left. What, what is it about the state that really hmm. kind of enamours you to it? It I think, does I mean, make me wonder. It's also because, I mean, the state's <laughs> become politically correct. And that's not just the Labour parts of it. That's the Tory parts as well. It's, um, I, there's a, a, in my book, I know a story of a, a rapper, um, Tyler, the creator, and a, a Californian rapper, who, when Theresa May was Home Secretary, she barred him from entering the UK. And Theresa May, British Home Secretaries like barring people from entering the UK. This guy was barred on the base after a feminist campaign on the basis that some of his lyrics were sexist and homophobic. So you know the state is perfect. I think the state's perfectly comfortable with political correctness because it's a perfect. It's just an it's an excuse for authoritarianism. Maybe this is why the left is cheering on the state because the state doesn't bar. As I said in the book, you can't bar black people anymore unless you can find that they've been sexist and homophobic. And then, you know, <laughs> then, you, then you can bar black people. Indeed. Oh, that's right. Um, Beanie Man, I remember those, um, like it was a decade ago when, you know, sort of um, uh, Stonewall and and um, the Peter Tatchell had their murder music kind of campaign against dance hall. Uh, Jamaican music, yeah, and um, you know, uh, according to Tatchell and Stonewall, you know, they, they constantly invited the government to ban, you know, Beanie Man and all these Jamaican dancehall artists because mm. their music um, had homophobic lyrics. And yeah. you know, again, it's right. The Home Secretary said, "Oh yeah, of course, I'll ban these people. Definitely, yes, yeah, like horrible, we've, great. We've got a way to ban Jamaicans, <laughs> and, that, that and no one's going to complain about. And get normally people who have been critical of um, state kind of um, authoritarian institutions." Um, to do it, you know, to, to ask them, to invite them, to do it for them, mm. you know, on their behalf. So, yeah, there is, um, you know, sort of a, a lot of a, a contradictory, um, you know, at the moment, um, there's a lot of contradictory kind of um, uh, attitudes the left have towards the state. So, you know, in some cases, yeah, that's right, the state, they ed end up endowing the state with power that, and authority that they probably wouldn't have had mm. i think yeah because i mean back in the day the kind of the hardcore edge of, of the the left was anarchism you know which is like completely burn the state and <laughs> and i guess those kind of tendencies are now on the right that in the libertarian movement so yeah it, to an extent that bits of the right have taken over from what the left used to do and bits of the left have taken over from what the right used to do you I know think you might have a, a good point there yeah you know the, a lot of libertarians today would, you know, they just want the state to empty your dustbins, make sure the lights go on, and you know, to do mundane things like that. I'm Not... sure you'll find libertarians <laughs> that, that claim we don't need our dustbins empty. <laughs> Someone's got to empty them, um, and the state's probably, you know, just about you know, can handle you know that kind of you know business basically. Um, but in terms of um, you know uh, what kind of uh, libertarian politics should be about it should you know should be about uh, kind of um, promoting a kind of self-sufficiency um, uh, and um, self-responsibility in in people it to to the extent that you know 
the we don't want the state to kind of constantly um, interfere, um, you know, in, in in political matters and um, you know sort of cultural matters only. You know, if they're going to maybe, you know, sort of give some, uh, you know, a group some money and that's it. But other than that, they, you know, they shouldn't have the right to be get, telling you, you know, what you can and can't say. Mm. Um, and, you know, this is more why and more, censorship is, is such a big thing for me because it, it comes, it's not just the state, it's the state and the modern universities and so on. But it's, um, it's, that's the ultimate power when you can control the flow of information and of the message. Yeah, and no, I think they've, the state has been, you know, very good at adapting itself um, towards that. You know, it's very successfully got um, the hate speech laws, you know, sort of put through on the back that somehow the state was, you know, sort of uh, defending uh, black people, defending lesbian and gay people, defending women. And of uh, course, the hate <laughs> speech laws then will end up being used against against the very people. Jamaicans. <laughs> Rappers, violent rappers. Um, um, basically, you know, an ordinary um, sort of working class people, basically, at the end of the day. There's an example I love of it, which is, you know, Reginald D. Hunter. Yeah. The comedian. Right. So he's yeah. a black American comedian, lives in London. And he um, had a comedy tour about a few years ago, which um, I went to. And he said, um, he called it Pride, Prejudice and Niggers. That was the name of his tour. And it's like he said, <laughs> the name didn't mean anything. What he'd done was got drunk one night or stoned or whatever and just sat there and gone through the name titles of books and just put the word and, and, and niggers on the end. So the one that made him laugh the most was like Pride, Prejudice and Niggers. So, it's like, <laughs> so that's what he called his tour. And it was a big West End show. And London Underground refused to carry his ads because they were racist. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, in, in, you know, in, in order to defend black people, we have to censor black people, especially this guy's mm-hmm. from Alabama. He knows more about racism yeah, than most black people. Yeah, uh, I think that, you know, that that's how um, this whole kind of, uh, sort of racism, anti-racism is being kind of turned kind of upside down at the moment. Mm. Um, and that's why I kind of, um, you know, sort of find myself criticising, you know, sort of a, a lot of anti-racist campaigns and initiatives more so now than I used to do in the past. Mm. Because, um, you know, yes, right, when you, when you have kind of, you know, sort of Ofcom or, um, you know, sort of these state um, institutions kind of intervening, on you know apparently on behalf of black people because they say oh you know that that advert yes it, it was a bit kind of you know sort of racist and you know we're going to ban that advert because you know we find it racist and we don't want to offend um black people it's like you know i just feel you know calm down here if i you know I haven't got the right to not be offended by anything. So just yeah. let, let it... So the, the standards set by the easy, most easily offended. I, I make a similar point because I'm Jewish. I, you know, I take right. that example. So I, I don't want... The, the, you know, isn't the state's now banned the um, Spurs fans from singing Yiddos? They can get arrested for singing... That's so, right, yeah, know, yeah. Spurs are, are the Yids and they've always been the Yids and they chant Yiddos. It's not because they hate Jews, you know, it's because that's their name and that's what, you know, and, and it's, <laughs> but the state's now decided to ban them from chanting that, which makes them, 
not, I mean, that feeds into anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Now everyone <laughs> thinks the Jews have just told the police what to do. And as, you know, as a Jew, I, I want, you know, I, I'd much rather people happily chant Yiddos and have police go and tell people what to say. And, it, you know, in general, I'd much rather, if someone's going to be anti-Semitic, I want to hear them and I want to speak to them because I want to exchange views with them. I don't want the police going in and telling them they can't say that because that offends me. But it's... Yeah, as you say, you're not allowed not to be offended. <laughs> but, and, and as a black man, I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, from my view of black politics at the moment, everyone's in loving getting offended. So, I mean, do you get a lot of shit from other black people as well? Well, I do, because, you know, I get a lot of people kind of, you know, sort of, um, uh, sort of messaging me, you know, how, how many, I've had that um, Malcolm X kind of speech on the, you know, what's the difference between the house nigger and the field nigger. I've, I've had three people send me that video. Uncle Tom, of, of yeah, yeah. Um, you know, um, three times this so far this year. It's about four or five times last year. You know, no commentary, just kind of just send me that. Mm. Um, you know, which is obviously they're trying to save for some reason that, you know, I'm, yeah, uh, uh, you know, I'm just... What is their main reason? I think that really their main reason is that I'm not towing the kind of line. Really, I'm not. Why won't you tow the line? Mm. You know, that's another way of saying. I I brush up against the same thing, but I'm white, so they can just call me a racist rather than an Uncle Tom or whatever. You know, it's probably easier to be called a racist than Uncle Tom. I don't know. Yeah, but you know, for me, I think you know. The people who are actually sending me this stuff, I think actually they're, you know, and for me they're the the Uncle Toms, you know. For me they're the real kind of, um, uh, kind of the house niggers. They're the ones who actually look to the state constantly. They want reparations, you know. People who want reparations for slavery, um, you know. For me they're the real ones that you know constantly looking at the state to kind of solve its problems you know give me money for uh, the, the slavery that you you put my ancestors in for me that's the very definition of a house nigger mm. someone who constantly looks somewhere else for you know sort of salvation and for you know sort of uh, for where they get their power from. That terminology comes from... So it's, it's old slave terminology. So there was the, you know, the, the well-behaved slaves who were allowed in the big house and then the rest <laughs> who were in the field. That's right, yeah, and yeah. It's interesting because, like, today the big house is the Guardian, <laughs> the Labour Party. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, so it's kind the of... The state as well, yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, you mentioned Ofcom, which is a horrible <laughs> censorship body. The, the CEO of Ofcom is a, a black woman because now... You know, because it's it's got diversity rules, and, and she's deemed to support to to represent other black people because you know, which is racist because she just because she's black. But yeah, the, I mean, you know, the big house is no longer is no longer the The big house is, is As, yeah, that's right. Is, There's you know. big institutions, and for me, because it it comes round every year. The first of August um, is um, uh, uh, Emancipation Day. Mm. Uh, comes around every year, first of August. So there'll be a big demonstration. You know, I already know this. Already. There'll be a big demonstration. You know, starting out in um, uh, Brixton, and you know there'll be costumes. People will be dressed up as slaves and all this. And 
you know, uh, but the main th- uh, thrust of their kind of um, their argument of their protest is to um, fight for reparations. They want reparations for slavery. That you know, for, um, that for the slave trade. Um, you know that was abolished in the past, but sure. And in, <laughs> in terms of the British Caribbean, that's going. That's more than two hundred years ago, right? So for me, that you know, they they want you know instead of saying, look, you know, that's finished, that's past. Let's kind of sort out the problems that we have today in the community. You know, they're kind of as I use that phrase. They're kind of stuck <laughs> in this kind of um, you know. We need the state to, you know, it, 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 you know enable us and uh, uh, facilitate us, and it's a constantly looking at the state um, to kind of. Um, and it's, I mean, also what they need because, like, a lot of mm-hmm. black activists today, because about half the black British population are African immigrants, and a lot of the black activists today are kind of Nigerian people of Nigerian background who so, their ancestors were selling slaves. They weren't, you know, um, so it's kind of. This kind of upsets people if you point this out to them, but you know. I know, <laughs> I did that with the, the, the Benin bronzes that are at the, um, are currently sitting in the British Museum at yeah. the moment now, because everyone's, there's a big debate about these um, the antiquities being sent back to, to Africa. Um, um, but in this particular case, which is kind of absurd, really, um, and it kind of actually highlights how absurd some of the arguments for reparations are, um, especially when it comes to these, um, you know, sort of um, priceless treasures now, mm. um, that the they were taken um, by the Royal Marines from um, a king who made his wealth um, um, from slavery, from yeah. selling slaves. People like, I mean, people like to forget this part of the slave story. You know, it wasn't just white people buying yeah. slaves, it was Africans uh, selling slaves. And the funny thing was, as well, um, I don't know if you've been watching that programme, um, uh, Civilization, um, that's been on, on BBC I've Two recently, it. and uh, the historian, uh, the author of um, um, a Black... Um, oh, I can't remember his name now. Um, he was narrating it and he was kind of um, he um, he was narrating the civilization um, show but and he was also talking about the Benin bronzes um, but he really played down the fact that the the, uh, the palace where the Royal Marines kind of um, uh, ransacked um, was built on the wealth of selling slaves to the Portuguese. He really, you know, oh, he kind of, he kind of said, oh, and by the way, he sold slaves. Not many, but he kind of sold slaves. And you think, oh, hold on a minute. How can someone amass great wealth selling cotton? <laughs> <laughs> they selling cotton anyway. <laughs> or selling, you know, grain. You know, sorry, you yeah. know, that, that I just, you know, I'm not no, buying that, that really. That, that, <laughs> the fact is that was the number one export from West Africa for a long time. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. Yeah. And for this historian um, to kind of downplay that, I thought that was really disingenuous of him at the time. To me, that sums up the phrase, what, what's meant by the words political correctness, because there's, there are different, there's historical correctness and there's political correctness, and sometimes you need to decide between the two. And it's, you know, the very phrase political correctness suggests that you can, take, that you can make things correct, you, that you can take 
lies and make them true and you can make truth and turn it into lies you know i tend to use that phrase historical illiteracy quite mm. a lot <laughs> these days because certainly in i guess in black history there's a lot of that i mean it's been written to to, to make people happy a lot of these stories yeah and there is a lot of you know sort of uh, different kind of histories it seems being kind of thrown at you um, so it does, you know, you do have to look at history and look at it very, very, very carefully um, because obviously, you know, there's a, there's a lot more to it and, it, and it, a lot yeah, of it is very a debatable. More, a lot more nuanced than people <laughs> like to think. Exactly. Um, it, you know, fascinating the subjects um, that they are, um, you know, the complexities of history sometimes... Um, you know, really do need a lot of time um, and effort, you know, to kind of, um, kind of uh, to pick it apart, you know. And I think, you know, um, especially with, uh, with this historian on um, that program, Civilization, I think he, you know, sort of um, downplayed um, areas. I think he downplayed areas which uh, didn't really... Um, run um, with his kind of narrative mm. um, and you know sort of up played areas um, you know sort of and made the most of kind of um, uh, areas of history that kind of does run along in, with his narrative and the narrative would be you know Britain is a kind of a colonialist country and that kind of colonialist mindset and spirit is still in existence today blah 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 etc mm. etc et and unfortunately i mean that's not just that historian i, I, th I guess he, he might be fearful to to tell truth because that's how that's what has happened in academia that i mean people you know if you tell truth that upsets people you know professors are, are kind of boycotted and and you know and protested by their students and people are fired for telling the truth and you know African history isn't the nice clean thing that we'd like it to be and if you're going to teach real African history you're going to be called a racist it, it does seem that way at the moment now um, especially if you know students or other lecturers find uh, the material um, being spoken about in, in, in history or it contradicts some of their own ideas um, about um, what happens in history. Uh, you could find yourself at the, end, the the receiving end of you know sort of kind of hysterical kind of demonstrations, and you know a lot of you know professors and learned people they're not really uh, you know in this world to kind of take that kind of stick from people. They're not really wisdom. built, yeah, they're not yeah. really built to like, you know, constantly have to run the gauntlet just to get into work every day and, mm. and all this. So you can't really blame them when they decide, you know, you know that uh, working in universities maybe not might be for them these days, you know. Uh, I, was, it, I it, wanted to kind of bring it to... Yeah, yeah, related to that area to cultural appropriation, which okay, is yeah, sure. what we're going to talk about. We've been talking for a which while. Is so probably my forte at the moment. I, it's one of those Google alert terms <laughs> that I, I have to wind myself up because it, this idea, you know, this come idea next. annoys me more than almost any other idea that, that's out there. And it's, 
it's such a, a, ter- a change around because for a long time, again, it, you know, I was, I was close to black politics, anti-racism politics. There was this thing that black culture is being ignored, that black, you know, black musicians aren't being signed up by a record label, not being played on the radio. And some of that was true. A lot of it was true. Some of it was borrowed from American civil rights language and stuff. Mm. But there was a lot of that. You know, I, I was always into the reggae scene. And it was always so niche, you know. I don't, I don't know how much of it was racist and how much of it was music companies thinking you can't sell that. But then, gradually, bit by bit, black culture came into the mainstream, and then white people started loving it and adopting mm. hip hop, garage, jungle, all of those, th- you know, which are my kind of music. And then suddenly, so it was like, it's great that that problem's over now. You know, black people are now overrepresented in in the culture, which is great to me because I love black music. Yeah, well, as in the past, and then suddenly, like five years ago, people started going, "Oh no, white people can't. You can't wear that. You can't do that because you're appropriating." So it's it's gone full circle. It's like first you're ignoring us, <laughs> and now you're appropriating from us. And and I find it, the first thing I thought when I heard the term cultural appropriation was of this. Uh, I'd seen this flyer. I think I've, I've got it up here, but it from this is from um, from uh, which US state um, from Louisiana, and it says it's a 1960s flyer. So it says, "Help save the youth of America. Don't buy Negro records. If you don't want to serve Negroes in your place of business, then do not have Negro records <laughs> in your jukebox or listen to them." And basically, you know, it says this, this stuff's undermining the morals of our white youth in America. And it's almost like the left is almost seized on this same idea. Like, white people leave that stuff alone. Unless a black person, unless somehow whoever runs the black community gives you permission to... You well, know. I think with that poster there, it's obviously, it's written with, you know, like you say, with this kind of um, race identity kind of um, uh, perspective in mind. This and, is from 1965, yeah, I think. And yeah. obviously white race white perspective which had a lot of purchase in american society at that time and um you know it wouldn't be you know far amiss that would have been in the heart of you know the jim crow um era um so it wouldn't you know it, it, no one would be shocked at all to see that sort of thing but mm. in terms of yeah you're right the what we see today now, um, especially, as you say, in the last kind of five years now, again, I think this um, uh, this rise of um, criticising cultural appropriation is also um, corresponds with um, the rise of identity politics as well. And um, identitarians um, uh, kind of uh, using, uh, having a... A much more racialized view of culture, it in and of itself, um, you know, uh, and the idea of who owns culture has become kind of uh, the question of it has become ra- racialized mm. uh, to that extent. So if you cannot win an argument with someone um, on um, who owns, um, say, something like jazz music. Um, uh, mm. if, if you're if you want to argue about it in terms of racialism in terms of um, of race you will you will always lose <laughs> that argument so so what I tend to do is talk about what culture is and what what it's supposed to be um, you know once 
culture is out there that it's for everybody it doesn't it's for human beings you know it does not it there's race had uh, you know only maybe uh, can be talked about in terms of its origin but yeah. after it's been released that's it you know it belongs to everybody in the whole world you know um, but at the moment now with the um, identity politics and um, what we're having now is this wave of um, kind of criticism uh, uh, against um, uh, kind of uh, cultural appropriation, which, it, which to me um, it, it's kind of, uh, again, it's a, it kind of trivialises kind of racism because it, uh, a lot of people are actually saying um, that, you know, if they point to someone being you know, um, cult, appropriating somebody's culture, uh, they're saying that they're dis- being disrespectful um, on the one hand to black people, and on the other hand, that that in itself is somehow a form of racism mm. um, in and of itself. So it's kind of almost becoming kind of, um, uh, you know, code word for calling someone out, calling them a racist, uh, you know, whether they realise it or not. And for me, it's it's become um, the the key of uh, looking at how insidious, um, you know, kind of viewing the world through um, the prism of the glasses of race has become. Because um, I think for me, it was when um, uh, this um, braid bar opened up it sells this braid bar as a shop that opened up in selfridges last year right and it had um, i can imagine they had two you know sort of uh, uh, white girls uh, it had uh, uh, kate moss's daughter and it had uh, Str- joe strummer's daughter uh, from the clash yeah um you know they're both kind of like 11 12 years old and they had them on the uh, on the picture uh, advertising the the braid bar at Selfridges you know very well to do kind of um, shop uh, up in Oxford Street and um, the Radio 1 DJ whose name um, I can't remember you know she on her show she was outraged you know how could they do this you know these two white girls that they're appropriating you know, black culture, they're, you know, they're basically stealing, um, you know, um, black culture and ideas. They're virtually racist, you know. And I, for me, that was the most, because uh, everyone picked it up, the Daily Mail picked it up, you know, all the newspapers picked up on it. Um, then um, Teen Vogue kind of weighed in on, on it with a, you know, a big article. And for me, that kind of represented the lowest point of, of this whole kind of um, an, uh, anti-cultural appropriation. It mm. was, you know, what we're talking about here, two kind of 11, 12-year-old girls are being yeah. thrown into the limelight you know, but you know, we're talking about cultural appropriation. Me and you, who had a background of um, his, you know, sort of uh, dealing with politics. But you know, cultural appropriation is barely kind of known. Um, generally, obviously, it's more widely known. But these two girls would have had no idea what they were getting into. You mm. know, and to to focus these two young girls, I thought, 
into an area which you know it's, which could it's potentially is 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 bullying on the nastiest sort of thing. Exactly, exactly. And I, I just felt, you know, I I just felt re- this is bad. This is really really bad. Mm. You know, if you're going to criticise people for cultural appropriation, criticise eighteen anyone who's eighteen and over, anyone who could probably stand up for themselves, but not too. Two girls who who they're looking at is that they got cool haircuts, mm. yeah. They got cool braids, you know. Don't worry, it's only going to be in for the weekend. And that's it, because you know. Yeah, and if to... they'd gone to Jamaica <laughs> on holiday, then locals would have happily braided their hair for a couple of dollars on the beach, and exactly. you know, it used to be it would have been. Seen... Or Africa, and you know, yeah. on the African coast, it's quite popular as well uh, to get your hair. There are braided. so many layers to this because a why do black people own braids anyway? You know, you truth know, is they don't. <laughs> they don't probably, probably <laughs> created them from somewhere else at some point, you know. And if, humans have been doing it for kind of as, as far as we then, know, as long as humans be, have been doing and, it. And then, be even if a black people had invented, you know, and there's plenty that black culture has invented. How the hell does it give a black person the right to police the behaviour of a white person? You know, this is their hair; it's not. Well, that's the problem with me because for me, it focuses uh, my ideas of why the critics of cultural appropriation is so wrong because in order to even view this advert um, for the braid bar in the way that they did they would have to abandon Malcolm not Malcolm um, Martin Luther King's you know sort of great kind of um, idea that we judge uh, we don't um, judge people by the color of their skin Mm. Uh, we judge them by the you know uh, the content of their character they would have to abandon that idea in order to come to the conclusion that these people were actually um, you know, sort of uh, being racist in any way, shape or form. Uh, for me, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, it's not um, kind of a, a principle, but in, in a way that that one concept, that one idea from Martin Luther King, you know, is uh, it's kind of an unwritten um, kind of uh, Principle. It's a principle. <laughs> it's not. It should be in. Should be written in stone in the same way as the American Constitution. It is, it's an absolute <laughs> principle of liberalism, and, and this equality can't. Equality means both sides. Equality doesn't mean one side. Yeah, exactly. By definition, it means both sides. And but for me, it kind of highlights how critics of cultural appropriation view the world. They uh, they throw these kind of um, you know equality issues out of the way. Um, you know, in fact, the last thing on their mind is equality and freedom. Those are the last things on their mind when they mm. criticise anybody for uh, cultural appropriation. I think it appeals to exactly the mindset that used to join the National Front. Like there's a there's a there's a vulnerable group. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna kick their faces. Yeah. Well, I was debating with Afu Hirsch um, that you know one of Little Mink's um, again was she had dreads for this this shoot. Um, one yeah, of her I videos. Saw that one. She got she and, got attacked for that. Yeah, and you know this is picked up in all the newspapers. Uh, her, you know, she she she, had to, she got so kind of um, bombarded with all this kind of hate about what she was doing about her hair and that she was you know apparently stealing black people's culture and all this. 
um, you know, that she had to back away from kind of um, social media for like forty eight hours because it was kind of it, it kind it of really is, got to her. It's uh, it's a mob. <laughs> the, mob the mob's ready to attack someone. But for, for me, it was kind of yeah. That, that is where this kind of whole debate about cultural appropriation seems to be going um, now. Is a it's a way again. It's like this this. Uh, the success now of th- this call out culture and um which ends up and being a twitter mob and a twitter storm um and it is basically um you know it's kind of um, uh, to win more power to be more kind of influ- influential when there is you, you have no kind of justification really uh, for being in that position in the first place and uh, you know as you were saying with this kind of idea that you're kind of uh, almost um uh, uh, you know you, you, what i was going to say to afia hirsch when i debated her about uh, about this was that you know if um you know nick Robbie or uh, Nick Griffins for the BNP was here. I'm sure he'd be quite happy with um, what Afia yeah, uh, is saying. It's segregationism. <laughs> you know, you know, if, the far right and the, and the you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If if Nick Griffin was sat there saying, you know, you know, uh, DA haircuts is really only meant for like white people, blah blah blah. We would quite rightly kind of. We should quite rightly have a go at him and say, you know, you um, would agree. You're talking because but... far right racists <laughs> hate white people copying black people, black fashion. That's, <laughs> that's what it was true in Louisiana, and you know, it's true yeah. of Nick Griffin uh, today. I'm sure. Uh, exactly, and I think they they kind of, um, in the same way, the critics of cultural appropriation almost mirror some of those arguments um, uh, to do with identity that was. Um, uh, put forward by the you know uh, the racists of the past, and I think for me that's what really kind of um, the fact that people don't actually um, that men, not, not many people actually seem to see that. A lot of people do see that. They think, hold on a minute, you know. I call them, uh, <laughs> them neo segregationists. That's well, my term. They, they, well, they are, and they almost think uh, you know everything should be done along you know as uh, you know, sort of. Uh, a segregationist line uh, and that you know sort of black people should have kind of be, be treated preferentially um, uh, throughout society um, and culturally uh, as well that you know that somehow you know sort of black people should have or um, be treated preferentially to anybody else without within society rather than to be treated equally um, you know that uh, when it comes to cultural appropriation, the last thing that is really on these people's minds is equality and freedom. And the last thing is also, they don't give a shit about the cultures they claim to be defending because if they, people who know about cultures understand they're, that they're, they come from a complex mixed origin. I mean, one example is um, there was this reggae concert in California banned because most of the DJs were white. So what happened was... There was a reggae con. I'm in the reggae scene. Reggae's been a mostly white thing for a long time. It wasn't in the 80s, but it is now. And um, it was at a university, and it was a, a coalition of black and Latino students decided that um, this reggae concert couldn't go ahead because most of the DJs playing were white. 
and they they felt that their culture was being appropriated and there are so many layers of stupidity like it wasn't Jamaican students it was black and Latino students madness and, uh, <laughs> that's madness and that's not what reggae is all about but these people <laughs> these people if they knew the first thing about reggae would know that so they're not they don't give a shit about the culture that they're defending and they're not defending it anyway because no, they, they're not they had to they had a reggae concert closed down so they don't give a fuck about <laughs> reggae they give a fuck about bullying and it's and, and it's and it's a good excuse to go and and endowing themselves with influence and power it is power which they don't you know. which they don't deserve you know and i think um it kind of touches on this whole idea of um you know the eurocentric curriculum which seems to be kind of running side by side with this debate about cultural appropriation you know we want to decolonize um the curriculum you know mm. oppose eurocentric curriculum it's just like you know hello mate you know if you want to do economics you, you can't really do it without studying adam smith and you know sort of karl marx and yeah you know, i mean someone will try and the people. scary thing is in this <laughs> culture someone will try try and read write and create a black economics or more likely feminist economics <laughs> or something it just it's not you and know you know and and then but this is what is then, meant by kind yeah. of um, culturally ghettoizing everything, you know, mm. which is like, you know, which is for me, it's the opposite of universalism and, uh, and you know, the idea that once the idea is out there, it, it's for everybody. Mm. There is no color, there's no sex, there's no gender to it. It's, it. it's an idea that should be, you know, either embraced or rejected, you know, um, uh, on its own merits. Uh, but for me, th th this whole notion of you know sort of wanting to decolonize the curriculum is more um, in line for me to the way people, uh, critics of cultural appropriation, are thinking because you know they they want to kind of you know they want to do economics, they want to do um, philosophy, but they just want to push all the white, uh, the dead white or stale males to one side. We boycott this economics course because there aren't enough. We're not studying enough black economists. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, for me, um, that's just a, such a backward idea of education as well. For me, uh, especially if you want to be educated as well in Western societies, you, you're going to really need to have these, um, you know, the writings of these, you know, philosophers, economists and uh, sociologists, no matter what colour they are, um, in order to you know become uh, you know a fully rounded thinker uh, for yourself in the future, you know I think anybody who um, you know suggests that somehow we should push you know sort of um, white um, kind of stale male um, thinkers to one side and just concentrate on um, you know sort of uh, economists or. or or you know, sort of academics that are only of um, a black variety. I, I I really think they're doing kind of um, a, a disservice mm. um, to black people. Uh, I think massively. I, I saw. I grew up in Brent, which was almost the birthplace of political correctness in the UK. <laughs> um, Brent Council made some horrible mistakes because they <laughs> and the Brent Labour Party because they decided to appoint black and Asian people all over the place, regardless of their qualifications. And that's still being unpicked. They, you know, they, they, um, 
and the worst of all was in in schools where they appointed um black kind of head teachers and stuff who weren't up to the job because they thought that a, a an incompetent black head teacher would do a better job for black students than a competent white head teacher it's racist but it, as you say it does a disservice sh- to black children shoehorning people in um, just because of their colour of their skin, you know, sort of setting them up to fail. Um, it, it, you know, that's what they end up doing uh, when they do things like that. Mm. Um, but and yeah, I think things like that, you know, they do need to be called out, definitely. Um, but, you know, it does seem in this day and age, there are seem to be less and less people um, willing to do that. And that's why we seem to be in a lot of the predicaments it, um, that yeah. we see today it worries me where we're going because I mean I, I've got mixed race kids and grown up mixed race son as well but it's like it's we're in the kind of environment today where almost my kids are going to be brought up to be told they're oppressed and I just feel like if anyone teaches my kids that they're oppressed <laughs> they're going to get a smack because <laughs> it's like I don't I want my kids to succeed I don't want you to teach them to, to fail you know and it's, this victim ideology it's nonsense you know, um, yeah, exactly. Uh, the same. My wife's Irish as well, and um, so my son's gonna have um, mixed heritage. He, he, you know, he goes to Ireland. He, you know, he's got his hurley stick, and he comes back to London, and he's got you know the whole kind of South London um, thing where, he, <clears throat> you know, excuse me, where he'll you know we'll go shopping he'll hear spanish voices because there's a big spanish community up in elephant castle now and he'll hear he's still africans and you know he'll hear uh, different uh, languages from people from poland eastern europeans because there's, there's loads of um uh, builders and that in the area now so uh, for, for him we've got uh, the romanians across the road um you know and their baby who he loves going across the road and so this kind of um, thing for him is it's just a natural. It's, a, it's kind of a given. It, and he, you know, the whole idea that he might be oppressed in some way, I would you hope, gonna, would strike gonna, him as being kind of alien. You're either going to teach. They're either, either <clears throat> going to take the the, the kid, children of colour, which I fucking hate that. <laughs> I know, they're going to hate being called. A you know, they're going to they're, they're going to like take them aside and tell them they're oppressed. And even worse, they're going to take their white mates aside and tell them that they're privileged, privileged and you need to then <laughs> treat these people extra nicely. I don't, you know, I want them to be... Yeah, the future doesn't this really is, bode well is, on, yes, on an that. attack on equality and, and, and on just... And, and it, it's sad, you know. I, I think I could almost imagine this is how it was in, say, South Africa a, a century ago, which ended up in apartheid, because apartheid is like the logical conclusion. And, you know, and it could happen. It, you know, it does worry me, because, like, it, Cape Town was one of the most mixed places on earth and they segregated it segregated it for people's own good you know and, and that's kind of it, it just sometimes I just keep shaking my head and looking at the left has almost has become everything I hated about about the right this identity left yeah I, I'm a staunch enemy these days of identitarians and um, I think I made the right choice when I kind of, you know, took sides in in all this. Um, I think I've definitely made the right choice, and uh, I, I'm just going to continue to um, 
criticise um, uh, the, the madness that I see uh, yeah. coming from uh, that side of politics uh, today. Yeah, I mean, we've talked for a long time. It would be definitely good to do a follow-up to this. But yeah, I think it's... it's yeah, very good. Time to close it. But yeah, Courtney, thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you.